0: Hey, y'all, you're listening to Dismantled, a podcast by and for intersectional environmentalists, activists, teachers, organizers, and changemakers fighting for climate justice. My name is Summer Dean, and today I'll be your host. I am a content creator, climate communicator, and the owner of the Climate Diva page on Instagram. My background is in renewable energy, and I'm also the creator of the energy topic page on Intersectional Environmentalist, or IE, a digital platform with resources and action steps to help dismantle systems of oppression and modern environmentalism. Conversations about the climate crisis must address and be led by those most impacted by it, Black, Indigenous, and POC communities. This episode is sponsored by Mercy Corps, And today, I'm sitting down with Yoko Okura, expert in disaster resilience, ex-news producer and reporter, and the Asia Climate Change Advisor and Regional Program Manager for Mercy Corps. With 40 years of humanitarian work under its belt, Mercy Corps is rooted in community-oriented aid activation. As the climate crisis intensifies, Mercy Corps has made it a priority to partner with frontline organizers in support of the resilience of worldwide communities against the natural disasters and their implications. We can make a systemic difference if we organize from the ground up. To learn more about Mercy Corps, their partnerships with worldwide communities, and how you can support, head to mercycorps.org. That's M E R C Y C O R P S dot org. All right, let's get into it. Hello, everybody. Um, Today I am here with an amazing guest that I am super excited to chat with about climate resilience and natural disaster resilience. Um, So I guess we'll just get into it. Yoko, could you tell us a little bit more about who you are, um, who you work with, and how you got started?
1: Yeah, hi. Thanks, Summer. Thanks for having me. Um, So I work in community-based climate adaptation and disaster risk reduction programs and um, in a nonprofit in an international NGO called Mercy Corps. So, Mercy Corps is a global team of humanitarians working in over 40 countries, including places such as Indonesia, Kenya, and Afghanistan. And we work together on the front lines of some of the world's biggest challenges to create a future of possibility where everyone can prosper and I specifically work on climate change issues um, with countries in Asia. So Mm -hmm. I work as the climate advisor for the Asia region, and this is working with country teams to make sure that we are thinking and acting on climate change in these countries. Mm -hmm. And I also have another role as a program manager for a flood resilience program, So I work with our country teams in Nepal, Indonesia, and Jordan to improve flood resilience policies, investments, and practice. Amazing.
0: I always like to ask people, you know, what ignited your interest in climate issues and, you know, natural disaster resilience? Because I think a lot of us, you know, our our interest gets sparked from many different places. So what was that spark for you?
1: Yeah, so after um, I graduated college, um, I was born and raised in Japan. So after I graduated college in Japan, I started working as a news reporter and producer for um, TV news. In 2011, um, the most devastating disasters in recent history of the country happened the earthquake and tsunami, and also the nuclear disaster. So around 10 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. And I was really, you know, at the front lines covering the aftermath of this disaster. And, you know, I'd never seen anything like this in my life. Um, you know, this is interviewing, you know, families who had lost their loved ones in the disaster, talking to policymakers when they had to make really difficult decisions on how to um, recover and how to respond to the disaster. And I think this really impacted me on a personal level. And I also really observed how even in a wealthy developed country like Japan, there were differences in how people were impacted and how um, people recovered. So, of course, you know, things like your socioeconomic status um, really impacted how quickly you were able to recover and, you know, being you know, having really the privilege to kind of follow this recovery, I realized this was something that I really wanted to devote my career to. So I've shifted kind of from the reporting media aspect to um, doing the actual programming and work. Um, And when you think about disasters today, you can't think about it without thinking of climate change because climate change is of course increasing um, and exacerbating the risks and impacts of disasters.
0: Definitely. What's one project you're you're currently working on today at Mercy Corps?
1: Yeah, so this is a hard question because I'm working on so many that I would love to share with you. <laughs> but one really important one, I would say is I'm working with my colleagues around the world to ensure, that climate finance reaches people who are most impacted by climate change and who need it most. It can be local, it can be national, it can be international from you know, public sources like government funds or private you know corporate sources, which basically support climate action. So this mm-hmm. can include you know, funding for activities like training farmers on climate resilient agriculture practices, or investment in technology for early warning systems so that people receive information about rainfall or floods. So this is, um, so climate finance really refers to finance that supports climate action. And Mm -hmm. I just wanna highlight that climate finance is not reaching people who need it most. And these people are people who are often in poverty who are experiencing the impacts of climate change and don't have the socioeconomic um, resources to adapt. Mm -hmm. And in our research, we found that, you know, the majority of the most climate vulnerable countries receive less than $20 per person in a year um, in climate Mm -hmm. change adaptation financing um, Mm -hmm. from 2010 to 2017. So if you think about, you know, you are in one of the most vulnerable countries to climate change in the world and your crops are being devastated your house is flooded and 20 dollars a year to be able to adapt to this this is just this is so such a small amount of money the peoples and communities and and the countries at the front lines of the crisis are the ones that have contributed the least to climate change so yeah exactly so countries like afghanistan or nepal one of the most vulnerable to climate change have contributed the least to greenhouse gas emissions. And Mm -hmm. if you zoom in into these countries, there are intersectional vulnerabilities and inequities within the countries that influence how (laughs) people are impacted differently by climate change. So you know, for climate finance to reach countries that need it most is something that's, um, it's an environmental justice issue and it's um, an issue that really impacts um, lives and livelihoods.
0: Definitely, yeah. I think, you know, one thing that always sticks out to me that happens, you know, whenever a catastrophic climate disaster happens in one of these countries is that people always flood in immediately after it happens with like donations to all of these, you know, major environmental organizations. And I always just ask myself, like, how do we know this like money is actually getting to the people that are affected? And how can we, you know, think about this on, you know, a broader scale and like invest before these things happen and invest in, you know, the people that are living there because they are resilient. They have been resilient. And how can we just allow them to empower themselves like before these things happen? Um, So, yeah, I think that that's so important. And that is That's wild to hear that, you know, still, even after, you know, all this time, I feel like so many people realize that, you know, the people that have uh, contributed to the climate crisis the least are being impacted the most. And that's happening today. It's not happening, you know, sometime far off in the future. Um, So I I guess that leads me into my next question, which are like, what are some systemic issues that lead to flood vulnerability in the first place?
1: Yeah. So this is a really important, but also big question. I think I might start with breaking down what vulnerability is. So mm-hmm. when you think about vulnerability, um, I think we can think about three main kind of components that influence it, which are exposure, sensitivity, and also the capacity to adapt. So for exposure, you know, how exposed are you to flood risks? If you are living along a river compared to on top of a hill, your exposure to floods is obviously very different. And then when you think about sensitivity, this is the degree you are affected due to the exposure. Um, If you Mm -hmm. basically have a desk job and, you know, even during floods or rainfall, you can just go into the office and do your work compared to if you are a farmer and dependent on weather patterns, your sensitivity is obviously very different. And then Mm -hmm. the capacity to adapt is what you can do to build your resilience to flood risks. And, you know, for example, if you're a farmer, this is something like being able to ensure your crops um, to be able to adapt to increased rainfall or drought, for example. And when we think about all of these components that lead to vulnerability, you know, exposure, sensitivity, the capacity to adapt, these all have systemic issues embedded into how this kind of, um, to what degree you are exposed or what to what degree you're sensitive. Um, so often marginalized and historically excluded groups are living in highly exposed areas to floods um, land that is prone to disasters will often be cheaper, and land ownership um, laws and policies can make it difficult for marginalized groups to own property. And often, they are left to live in areas that are more um, exposed to disasters like floods. And if you think about, you know, the capacity to adapt. You know, even if you're living in the same community, the capacities will differ. So if you're in an area that is exposed to floods, a common way to adapt is, for example, to raise your house with stilts um, so that, you know, you're more elevated and there's less water coming in or um, like insuring your land and assets. But we all know there's, you know, systemic inequalities and equities that influence who has access to financial resources to be able to invest in these things. So all of um, the issues, the components of vulnerability have systemic issues embedded in this. Mm-hmm. And I, I can um, give an example of an actual real life situation if that helps. Yeah. Yeah, so Timor-Leste is one country where we, uh, Mercy Corps, works, and Dili is the capital of the city, and it recently experienced one of um, the worst floods um, in the spring um, amidst the COVID crisis, the pandemic, so it was a really devastating um, event. Dili is a capital city on the coast, surrounded by hills on one side and the sea on the other, and mm-hmm. we consider, you know, there's extreme rainfall, of course, with climate change causing this flooding, but it's a combination of systemic issues that led to um, the impacts and many households being impacted. Um, and this was, you know, lack of economic opportunities, which had led to urbanization and an increased population centering around the capital in Delhi, And to... Um, With increased population, there's deforestation in the hilly area for economic activities like farming Mm -hmm. and informal settlements um, along the river. And so when you have more rainfall due to climate change, there were less trees and forests to absorb the water um, in the hills, so you have more water running downstream and into the poor families who are living in the informal settlements along the river. So I think this is an example and unfortunately not a really unique example of how we see climate change acting as a threat multiplier, um, really kind of magnifying the systemic um, inequalities and equities um, challenges in the area um, to really impact the people who are most vulnerable to Climate change and disaster.
0: Wow yeah that is that's incredible and um, I think when we think about climate change as like a, a threat multiplier I think that is the thing that you know scares me the most and that I always try to tell people who are first learning about this is that this is first of all it's not the first crisis that people are facing. These people that are you know subjected to you know so much oppression and systemic issues besides climate change are already facing these and have been facing these for generations. And then when you pile on all of these different effects of climate change, the deforestation, the increased rainfall, all of it works together in this really sinister way that always impacts, you know, the most oppressed in our society, the people who have the least. So I guess that leads me into my next question, which is, what are some of the best tools to protect and prepare these individuals for flood resilience?
1: Yeah, so I would start off with saying, I mean, you've kind of mentioned this before, but actions before the event is really important to prepare for disasters, including floods. For example, we know that every dollar invested in flood risk reduction can save an average uh, of $5 in future losses. And what this wow. preparedness, yeah, this is, you know, it's it's huge, right? And we, we need yeah. to really be taking action before these events. Um, and w- what this, you know, action looks like, um, I think on a very individual, actionable level, I think one is preparing evacuation plans. So like, do you know where to go when there's a flood? Do you have a plan with um, your family or people you are living with? Um, Have you placed valuable items in safe places so that you don't lose them um, in a flood? And I think another important part for preparation is to formalize social networks. So um, if you think about if a flood actually kind of happened where you live, you think I think you would turn to people like your neighbors or your friends, your community really in a time of crisis. And formalizing mm-hmm. these relationships is something that Mercy Corps does. So we often work with um, communities to um, help facilitate the development of community disaster management committees in countries like Nepal, for example. And what this means is that you have a collective plan on what to do, like where to evacuate, and then also an mm-hmm. understanding of who, who are the people who will need support in evacuation, for example. Um, you know, mm-hmm. smaller children, you know, the elderly, um, people with persons with disabilities. You know, when an actual flood happens, not everyone is just going to be able to run up a hill and evacuate carrying all of their valuable items. So I think, Mm -hmm. um, you know, having a collective community plan and formalizing some of the kind of social capital really that exists is um, another way. And I think um, when we think about, you know, resilience, these some of the activities that I've mentioned This is largely around preparedness and response, but after the flood event happens, you you need to recover. And for recovery, you know, economic recovery is key. Um, So this means that, you know, you need to have access to financial resources like savings, insurance, bank accounts, and currently many communities and individuals most affected by climate change are not able to access these resources um actually more than 3 quarters of adults in countries coping with humanitarian crises are outside of the formal financial system you know things like financial inclusion that they're really and actually important for disaster risk reduction and climate change adaptation so um you know when i can give you an example at mercy core we, when we're doing um Programming to support communities that are um, at high risk of flooding. Um, This is the far west region of Nepal, um, mainly the Tharu ethnic group. Um, We, of course, work with the communities to support, to really kind of um, unlock community solutions, as you said, that already exist. I mean, the communities have tremendous knowledge. We work with communities to identify crops that can have a co-benefit to both disaster risk reduction and generate income, which will be necessary for recovery. Um, So this is an area that is experiencing increased flooding and landslides. And actually the community had to relocate because the flooding got so bad. And in addition to supporting them on some of this formalizing the social networks, we worked with the community to identify crops that would be resistant to floods and hold back the water. And this was identified as sugarcane and sugarcane really you know, grows taller than I am. And this was a kind of, um, I would say, like a nature based solution that um, stopped the water from coming in to the land, um, but also um, generated income um, to be sold to local sugar factories. You know, this was an income generating opportunity, but also reduced the flood risk so much that the community was able to reclaim 40 hectares of land for farming and living. And they were able to, you know, return back to their community. So I think when we think about, you know, something as that might seem as simple as a flood as a disaster, the kinds of um, activities and things that you need to do. It's, it's not just about um, respo- um, responding and preparing, but also um, kind of setting up systems and to be able to recover from the event so that you are more resilient.
0: Thank you for that example. And, um, you know, in my past experience working in renewable energy justice as well, I think one thing that a lot of people are thinking about is the fact that, you know, we've already locked in a certain amount of climate change. So we are going to have these disasters for a very long time. So we're not going to be able to prevent many of them. So it's more so about how can we, you know, help these communities and help ourselves build up to just be resilient and you know when these things happen we can rely on our community and we know what to do and we can just get through this together and i think that that is the most important thing and you know just you know building up through mutual aid and you know relying on these you know really important crops and natural solutions that can help us stay resilient so yeah that's a, that's a great point how can we help communities on long term recovery um, and, you know, help them empower themselves and, you know, just building resilience overall.
1: Mm -hmm. I think we, as you said, we've started to touch upon this a bit, but when we are talking about empowerment, um, I mean, to me, that is that the most marginalized groups not only have a seat at the table, but they're able to voice their opinions and their voice opinions are um, heard and considered. Um, so we need to make sure that when we are, you know, in a place to help su- to support these communities to build their resilience, that we take a lot of time to understand the systemic issues the faith communities face, the power dynamics, you know, relationships. And incentives, and take an approach where we are putting the most impacted at the center of our work. And mm-hmm. when we talk about empowerment, this we aren't bringing solutions to the communities. We are, you know, what yes. we're doing is unlocking community solutions. We're facilitating access to information and tools. Mm-hmm. So that communities, which already have a wealth of knowledge about their history, you know, land and environment, can devise solutions with access to um, different types of tools.
0: Definitely. I, I think I want to start transitioning into energy justice um, because this is you know, my background and something that I'm definitely very passionate about. To me, I think energy justice is very synonymous with climate resilience. Um, because when we think about energy and you know climate disasters, what happens when um, you know a disaster strikes is a lot of times the the power goes out and we lose energy, and it's really important you know that we remember that the current energy system right now around the world leaves out a lot of these lower income communities, and they're generally like the first to lose power, and um, I think there's a lot of Power in knowing that, like, there are a lot of energy solutions that allow these communities to, you know, power themselves and not really rely on outside help. And I think that's the exciting thing about renewable energy because it really just allows that to happen. Because a lot of the times, when you have like community solar, for example, with batteries, and you have all of that in one place, you can power an entire community without you know, help from this, you know, wealthy outside uh, entity. And so I would love to just hear, like, what does energy justice mean to you? And how does renewable energy affect climate resilience for countries disproportionately impacted by the climate crisis?
1: You know, the communities Mercy Corps works with often do not have regular access to energy. And they also pay A disproportionate percentage of their income for energy compared to more wealthy countries. So um, you know, having access to reliable electricity and, and energy is a basic requirement to overcoming poverty and for sustainable development. I mean, so if you think about it, it's you know, energy is required for everything from cooking of course you know powering households for lighting but this also means if you have light children can study and this has to do with educational opportunities Um, you know you need productive energy for livelihoods including agriculture you know water pumping irrigation this all um, these all require energy and for access to communication technologies you know this call that we're having across the US um, and Asia like this is not only possible because of these communication technologies and our access to internet things we take for Mm -hmm. granted um, and you know the communities we work with don't have regular access to this so energy justice really um, is a basic requirement to overcoming poverty and without it like we, we cannot have sustainable development And I just also want to add that, you know, it's really important to remember that energy justice is strongly linked with issues that may seem a bit unrelated at the offset, like gender-based violence, for example. So, you know, women, girls, and children are the usual um, custodians of household energy, so they, you know, often travel long distances in areas where we work for firewood collection. And this, you know, exposes them to gender-based violence. So as you've said, if communities have access to affordable and accessible energy sources like solar, you know, this also links to issues on education, livelihoods, but also, you know, issues like gender-based violence. Wow. Yeah, that is that's
0: incredible. And what are some of the most um, in your work, like what is some of the most accessible renewable energy sources um, available for these countries?
1: Yeah, so um, this is very different, I think, depending on the context and environment. Um, you know, we work in many fragile contexts, such as refugee camps where there are very weak markets and supply for energy services. So, you know, I can give you an example um, of when we are working um, in a refugee camp in Uganda. You know, one of the most, um, one of the biggest challenges are the upfront costs, right, for these systems sometimes. So, like even things like solar and um, solar power, a lot of refugees' mm-hmm. households are not able to pay for the upfront costs. So we work um, um, to create these innovative relationships with private sector partners that supply the technologies, but also financial mechanisms so that these households are able to pay for energy services and create a sustainable market system. So what this looked like was um, implementing a results-based um, uh, pay-as-you-go kind of um, financial mechanism so that um refuge, people living in refugee camps could also, you know, pay for their solar energy. And this was really, you know, instrumental in opening up the market for solar products because the private sector partners were able to see that there was a demand, even in these places where, you know, people thought, you know, the people living in these places cannot afford the energy so that it's not a market but now the companies are able to sell smaller solar lanterns at full market prices.
0: Wow, that's incredible and I, I I feel like a lot of the times, you know, living in the United States, we hear people talk about the renewable energy revolution, we hear people talk about clean energy this, clean energy that and a lot of the times um, you know, these like lower income countries are not included in the conversation at all. Because I think a lot of people, um you know, just have this idea that, like, they can't afford renewable energy, or that they're not, like, you know, at that level to be developed enough yet. Like, these ideas that are just perpetuated in these Western countries, I think just further, um you know, these systems that are very colonial in nature that, you know, continue to just extract from these countries and leave them behind. Um, So I think that's so, so important. Um, And then just going back to your work in in Asia, do you see countries there like activating around climate issues um, and maybe like potentially forming an Asia climate change coalition, for example?
1: This is actually a kind of timely question, because um, you you probably have heard of like COP you know the UN climate change conference COP 26 is happening in November this year. Um, but in the lead up, there are um, a lot of regional um, gatherings and coalitions forming to discuss the issues specific to the region. And there is the Asia Pacific Climate Summit and week um, that is happening actually next month. So there are um, a lot of uh, platforms and discussions to, um, where we discuss issues, um, that are especially relevant to Asia. Um, and I think our role as Mercy Corps having, you know, the privilege to be able to access that, those types of, um, platforms, but also working with the communities is to really, um, be an advocate for the communities and speaking about what we're seeing um, on the ground. So yeah, there are actually a lot of initiatives around these issues, but I think there is still um, more work to be done to be able to actually um, elevate and um, bring the work, um, do the work to really support um, the most impacted to um, climate change. Um, And I'd also say, um, aside from just, you know, the countries coming together, um, it's really important that, you know, different sectors come together. So um, the flood resilience program I mentioned earlier is actually um, a program called the Zurich Flood Resilience Alliance. And this alliance um, consists of nine organizations from NGO, academia, and private sectors, who are working together to increase um, public and private investment in community-based flood resilience. And I think you know the strength of that is just us as Mercy Corps, we of course, you know, we take pride in the work that we do, but our reach and our knowledge, um, you know, is really expanded when we work with different types of organizations and different we, when we work across sectors. And I think this is really important working with private sector, working with public sector, you know engaging on issues on platforms like internet, intersectional environmentalists really to be able to kind of exchange ideas, knowledge and to be building from each other to really create and take action um, on innovative solutions um, to fight the climate crisis.
0: Amazing. And I do have one last question for you because this is the Intersectional Environmentalist podcast. I have to ask, what does intersectional environmentalism mean to you?
1: Yeah, so this is a really um, big question, an important question. And I think um, working on climate change programs to serve the communities and people who are most impacted I don't think we can address climate change without having an intersectional lens and approach. If you think about it, we've discussed this, but the impacts of natural disasters are not natural by any means. You know, your vulnerability, your exposure, your sensitivity, your ability to respond and recover are influenced by your race, your ethnic group, gender, socioeconomic status, just to name a few and the most impacted and at risk to climate change are reliant on natural resources for their livelihoods. And three out of four living in poverty are reliant on natural resources to survive. And they often do not have land rights and ownership. So this requires climate resilience action programs to work across governance, social and economic systems and environmental systems. And I would also say on a personal level, I think intersectional environmentalism to me is also, you know, being aware of who you are and the power dynamics you bring into the environment. So you can be the same person, but the privileges and disparities of your intersectionality may change depending on the Mm -hmm. context you are in. So, you -hmm. know, for myself having you know been born and raised in Japan I am you know Japanese a super majority race in my own country but when I step outside and I'm in the United States or often in these high level international platforms engaging in climate change I am a person of color a woman from Asia but when I'm okay. actually working in these countries in Asia like Indonesia or Myanmar I am um, a person that has been educated um, and grown up in the system in a country that was a colonizer of these countries, right? Japan. And now mm-hmm. that often, you know, funds programs and influences policies. So, you know, what this means is that, you know, the meaning of my presence and position and the space I take up, the power dynamics that I bring shift, even though I myself am the same person and they mm-hmm. do really influence The conversations and discussions I have, whether it's, you know, community members or, you know, government officials, how I engage and how other people listen and engage with me differs um, with these dynamics. So I think um, it's really important to invest in time to educate myself, so yourself, about the Mm. environmental context, so you recognize The different privileges and disparities your own uh, intersectionality can bring
0: wow yeah that was that was beautiful i think you know it's really important to use intersectional environmentalism as a lens to view these really huge systemic issues but also on the personal level i think that is something that has really just helped me this past year since intersectional environmentalist was formed was you know, it has really just helped me learn more about my own intersectionality and my own identity and how that relates to the environment. Um, so I really appreciate you saying that. But yeah, I think that's that's it for today. Thank you so much, Yoko, for joining me. I learned so much from you, so I really appreciate that. And thank you to all of you for tuning in to this episode of Dismantled. You can learn more about our work on Instagram at intersectional environmentalist or on our website, intersectionalenvironmentalist.com. Thank you again for listening. Thank you, Yoko. And I'm Summer Dean, and here's to a future that's intersectional.